If we follow the geopolitical change today, needless to say, the word should be puzzlement. Well, given the fact that today, when we look at this geopolitical games, number one, no one is actually playing the games fairly. And number two, we are also entering the age, what we call uncertainty. Post the pandemic, every single country today, politically speaking, is standing at the crossroads. But meanwhile, everyone has what we call potential agenda, even for this economic ambition. Look at U.S., look at China, look at the countries in Europe. At this moment, the question we should be asking is, what is the future for the world? Well, here's something we also need to put into consideration. Before we can talk about the future, and what about the history, and what about the past that actually shaped the personality, the fabrics of the society, and even the fate of the country? How much did you understand uh, what we say political crossroads in the 1950s, particularly for the country of China, U.S., and many more? Well, in this episode, we're going to dive into one of the amazing books that I came across and also invite the distinguished author to join our show to share the perspective and the hidden secret behind his book. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is the Mr. Nick Bunker. And Mr. Bunker is the award-winning author of a four innovative books about America and the global history. In 2015, he was the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for history with his amazing book, which is entitled An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. But again, in this episode... It's my my honor to invite Mr. Bunk to talk about his brand new book, which is called In the Shadow of Fear. Well, Mr. Bunker, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Well, thank you very much, Will, for that very uh, generous introduction. Well, Mr. Bunker, again, as we mentioned before, today, when we look at this complication and also intricacy of geopolitical game today, everyone is asking the question, what about the future? But again, I think it's crucial we need to look at the history and also examine some of the facts before we can actually predict the future. Now, let's go to your book right away. I know that at the beginning of the book, you mentioned one of the significant characters in American history, which was President Harry Truman. And now, this is something that you wrote in the book, and I want to get your uh, elaboration on that. You wrote, and I quote, When Truman spoke about farmers and labor, he always had in mind the sufferings they had endured in the Great Depression. Truman wanted to be fair to everyone. Now, Mr. Bunker, the first question, why was so significant to start with the book with President Truman? And throughout this, uh, the book, how significant was the character and what role did he actually play throughout the history? Go ahead. Well, Will, uh, the book, as you say, is called In the Shadow of Fear, but the subtitle is America and the World in 1950. And what I'm dealing with is a period of 10 months between September 1949 and June 1950, during which a whole series of conflicts uh, came to a head and in which we can see being laid down, so to speak, a lot of foundations for issues uh, and themes which we're still living with today. Mm. I mean, you mentioned, for example, Taiwan. We'll talk about that later on. 
Now, Harry Truman was the President of the United States at this point. Um, he was a man in his mid-60s. He had been re-elected president in November 1948 in a surprise victory. It had been widely expected that he would lose. Now, Harry Truman, of course, was a Democrat. Uh, it had been widely expected that he would lose that election to the Republican candidate, who was Governor Thomas Dewey of, of New York. But against all the expectations and in the face of a great deal of criticism, hostile criticism from the media, Harry Truman had won the 1948 election. Mm. And in 1949, he was looking forward to regaining momentum and implementing uh, quite a bold new package of, of social reform, social measures in the United States to be called the Fair Deal. And the context really was this, that remember in the 1930s, uh, America had suffered grievously during the Great Depression. Uh, very heavy unemployment, uh, financial crisis, um, a long period of, of gradual recovery from, from, the, from the depths of the Great Depression, but nevertheless it got left quite a traumatic legacy. And then, of course, there had been World War II, during which, of course, America had mobilized massively industrial in terms of its army and navy air force. Um, and when you get to the late 1940s, the period I'm dealing with, America was still, if you like, coping with the consequences of the legacy of the Great Depression and also the, the huge efforts that it had made to to fight World War II. Mm. And there are a whole series of issues that have been, were left outstanding. Um, on the domestic scene, for example, there was a big shortage of housing in the United States because during the war years and during the Depression, not many houses and, and apartments had been built. Uh, there was a legacy of, of social inequality between different parts of the country. Um, the people of America, um, actually, because of quite a lot of inflation since World War II, had actually not seen their standard being improved since the end of World War II. So there are a whole series of issues that, that Harry Truman had to deal with, also the issue of civil rights, which, of course, was one of the big programs, to be one of the big themes of his presidency on Sally Hode. And on the foreign scale, in terms of foreign policy, there also there were great challenges to be met. I mean, these were the early days of the Cold War. Mm. Uh, America was still not sure of the intentions of the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. The Soviets had just acquired an atom bomb, uh, which was a great worry to America, because up until that point uh, in 1949, uh, America had had an, a monopoly on nuclear weapons. And then there was the great question of China. Now, the question of what was going to happen now that China was a communist country, now that the People's Republic of China had been declared uh, in the autumn of 1949, the Americans didn't really quite, quite know what to make of Mao Zedong. They didn't know quite what to expect. So there are all these issues. And Harry Truman was kind of the centre of all these issues. Mm. And what the book is about is really the way in which, in this period, a lot of these issues came to a head. Truman found himself under a great deal of pressure and a great deal of trouble on the domestic front at home. And he also had to face a whole series of new questions internationally and overseas. Mm. Um, and these questions weren't handled as well as they might have been. And the consequence at the end of the book is, is which is where the book finishes, is June 25th, 1950, when the uh, the Korean War began mm. with the invasion of, of the South by uh, Kim Il-sung. Mm. Mr. Bunker, you know, when we look at Truman's background, of course, you know, I, I still remember when I was in school, when I was a student for uh, uh, international relations, I know one of my professor's favorite quote was from Winston Churchill. And he said, and I quote, I still remember today, the price of greatness is responsibility. So when we look at Harold Truman, how much do you think he actually had the personality or had the uh, sense of understanding when it came to the word responsibility. And again, especially from this foreign relations side. I mean, again, you mentioned in the 1950s, and again, we're going to talk about Taiwan, we're going to talk about China for a second, 
But again, China was founded in the year 1949, and Harry Truman was shouldered this major responsibility as the president. But meanwhile, citizens in America and also for the whole world had higher expectations for this person. So again, let's go back to your book. How much do you believe that Harry Truman actually understood the role of American president and also meanwhile dealing with the issues on the foreign policy side, particularly with the countries such as China or Soviet Union or any other relevant countries? What do you think? Well, in terms of the way he understood his role at home in America, the key point really was that, that Harry Truman had always been a, a strong supporter of Franklin Roosevelt, mm. uh, the Democratic president before and during World War II. And so he'd always strongly supported uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's program of domestic social reforms known as the New Deal. Uh, prior to that, uh, before um, the rise of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Harry Truman had also been a great supporter of a previous president, Woodrow Wilson, mm. who had uh, ideas not not quite the same as, as Franklin Roosevelt's, but also something of a social reformer. So he saw himself very much in that tradition as someone who was going to make a difference at home with social reforms, bold measures of public spending, bold measures, for example, to improve health care, bold measures to, to build dams and irrigation systems in the Western United States, bold measures to help farmers. So a whole series of bold measures he want to implement. That that was his 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 attitude on the domestic on the domestic front. In terms of foreign policy, now Truman had a pretty clearly worked out set of principles, which he had enunciated in, in no uncertain terms in, in 1947, what was known as the Truman Doctrine, essentially a doctrine which which contrasted the democratic societies of, of the West with what he saw as the autocratic society of the Soviet Union and, and its satellite mm. powers. And Truman had some very clear principles. He knew what he wanted to achieve. I mean, he believed in extending democracy worldwide. He believed in the United Nations. He believed in all sorts of things. Uh, the problem he had in 1949 it wasn't so much the principles, it was it was the putting them into practice. It was being confronted with a whole series of new, complicated challenges, a whole new body of facts, if you, if, if, if you, so to speak, uh, with which he had to come to terms. And it was really the implementation that was a problem from his point of view, rather than the uh, rather than the principles. But what about his economic agenda? You know, again, as you mentioned in the intro, everyone cares about economy. You know, if I can trace back. Uh, when Bill Clinton was the president, of course, we're looking at the modern day presidency and during his campaign speech that he actually used the phrase is called it's economy stupid. So in other words, that you <laughs> yeah. need to understand that this economic interest, it's actually something that can get voters to be excited. And of course, fast forward today, 2023, we still in this conversation. But going back to Truman, uh, uh, Mr. Bunker. What about his economic agenda and how significant or how important was that, not just domestically, but also internationally? How well did he handle that, um, according to your research or in the book? Well, he would have entirely agreed with Bill Clinton. Uh, he was fully aware of the fact that uh, that he would, to a large extent, stand or fall or fail or succeed as president on the basis of his economic record. Mm. Now, the problem Harry Truman had uh, when he first became president in 1945 and still throughout 1946, 47, 48, was inflation. Mm. Now, in some ways, the situation of America and the world at the time was not unlike what we've seen since see, the COVID epidemic. Uh, now, remember what happened after COVID was that, that we had a burst. We've had a burst of inflation worldwide. Mm. 
Well, the reason that's occurred really is because during the COVID pandemic, there was a lot of artificially suppressed demand. People couldn't go out, they couldn't, they couldn't spend money on leisure activities. Everything was kind of damped down, as it were. Um, and also, of course, supply chains were under a lot of pressure and so forth. Now, most governments reacted to COVID with, with a burst of expansionary uh, fiscal policy. Um, they spent a lot of money, basically, that, that they didn't necessarily have to try and keep the economy going. And the effect of that after um, COVID really was to produce this great big burst of inflation. Uh, a lot of demand at a time when supply is a bit restricted. And that was actually quite similar to Harry Truman's problem after World War II. World War II was like, if you like, a long version mm. of the COVID pandemic. And similarly, inflationary pressures have built up. And throughout Harry Truman's period in office, if you look at his poll ratings uh, in opinion polls with the American public, you'll find that the ratings of Harry Truman followed pretty closely tracked inflation. In other mm. words, when inflation was high, he became unpopular. When inflation came down again, he kind of recovered his popularity. And so that was his big problem. Now, in 1949, uh, things had slightly calmed down on the inflation front. Prices weren't rising as much as they had. But there had been a recession. There was a big recession in the first half of 1949 in the United States. And it was mainly in the United States. It also affected one or two other countries as well. But it was a problem for Truman. And it left him with quite a big budget deficit that he, could, that he couldn't close. And it had the effect of, of really derailing and, and um, blocking the kind of liberal reforms he wanted to make. Now, on the international scale, what the Americans were trying to do at the time was they were trying to create something like what appeared in, in the 1960s and 70s, which is they wanted global free trade. Mm. They wanted other countries, uh, particularly in Europe, whether Britain, France, West Germany, and hopefully eventually one day the rest of the world as well. They wanted them all to adopt the kind of uh, free market economics that America has always practiced. They wanted to turn Europe, for example, into a great big single market, not unlike the United States. They wanted everybody elsewhere to, to do the kind of things America did in terms of managing its corporations, managing its businesses, investing for the future. The idea being that then trade would flow around the world, everyone would grow wealthier. Now, of course, big obstacle of this was that so much of the world was in the hands of, with either uh, dominated by the Soviet Union or allied in some way with the Soviet Union. And of course, China was a great big kind of wild card at the time. I mean, they didn't really know what Mao Zedong would do when, once he became leader of China and how quickly China would become a, a communist society. So those are the kind of issues he had to grapple with. Yeah, in economics was, was front and center. Now, Harry Truman was actually, and I think one of his attractive features is he was actually quite a humble, modest kind of character. Mm. He didn't believe that he himself or the government could necessarily create and engineer um, a lot of economic growth. He didn't necessarily believe that. But he did believe he had a big role to play in terms of facilitating it and so on. Uh, now, difficulty, the paradox of 1949-1950 was the economy actually started to recover quite strongly. Uh, but unfortunately, his popularity continued to dwindle. Mm. Uh, there was labor unrest in America, there were strikes and so on. Uh, rather like President Biden today, although America was growing more prosperous, the American people didn't actually want to give any credit to, that, to President Truman. And that was kind of the backdrop, really, for a lot of what occurred. Hmm. Well, Mr. Bunker, I want to move on with our conversation. Now, let's bring China and Taiwan into our conversation. And again, as we mentioned before, China was founded in the year of 1949. And of course, that today, China is no longer just a country on the map. But I want to talk about, in your book, you dedicated a good amount of information on China and also particularly regarding the relationship between China and Taiwan. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was this significant and also rather crucial for us to talk about China and Taiwan in your book? 
In other words, what role did China actually play or influenced the U.S. when we look at this 1950, the relationship between America and the global world? Your thoughts? Well,、uh, this period that I'm talking about here, 1940, 1950, was really the first time at which which Taiwan became an issue for the United States.、Mm. And remember, of course, at this stage they didn't even call it Taiwan in America; they called it Formosa. They wouldn't call it Taiwan for many years to come,、mm. and for the first time, Formosa, this this island、uh, off the coast of China, suddenly became something which Americans had to talk about and they had to think about, and it was a very complicated situation.、Uh, now, the background obviously was this: that、um, much to the to the unhappiness of the United States,、uh, Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang, the nationalists in China, had of course been defeated in the Chinese Civil War. Uh, the People's Liberation Army were, were sweeping across China during 1949, completing、uh, the liberation of the country.、Um, and of course,、uh, Chiang Kai-shek gradually moved all his forces from the mainland, from his capital at Chongqing, over to the island of Taiwan.、Mm. Uh, the trouble is, he did it actually quite gradually.、Um, it was an obvious place to put a defensive stronghold if you were if you were Chiang Kai-shek,、um, but he did it quite gradually. And he did it in such a way that the Americans really took quite a while to wake up to what was occurring.、Uh, suddenly, they discover in the autumn of 1949 that that Chiang Kai-shek had a big army on Taiwan. He had a million refugees,、uh, and he was moving back and forth between his headquarters in Chong- Chongqing and Taipei. He would move back and forth between the two, eventually settling completely on Taipei in Taipei at the end of 1949. Now, this confronted the Americans with, with a bit of a conundrum. Now, on the one hand, they were very unhappy, of course, with what they call the loss of China—the fact that that China had been that Chiang Kai-shek had had been kicked out of power, and that、uh, the People's Liberation Army had taken over the country, and that the, pe- the People's Republic was founded. They were very unhappy about that. But they suddenly had this conundrum to do with Taiwan, which they hadn't really been been, been expected to face. Now, you have to bear with me because the situation of Taiwan at the time was really pretty complicated.、Mm. Um, now. If you recall,、uh, there had been a war between China and Japan in 1894 to 1895, the first Sino-Japanese war, and as part of the conclusion of that war, the Japanese had taken control of the island of Taiwan under the Treaty of Shimonoseki of 1895. Now, this was a bit inconvenient from the from from everybody's point of view in, in the 1940s because, technically speaking, in legal terms, that treaty was still in force. Because America had not yet signed a treaty of a peace treaty with Japan to end World War II, technically the treaty was still in force, and technically, therefore, Taiwan was actually part of the Japanese Empire. A, a difficulty here also was that during the 1910s and 1920s and so on, the, the major Western powers, particularly Britain and France, had always accepted this because they were actually allied with Japan at that time. So you have this complicated situation. Taiwan, officially, legally, was actually supposed to be still part of the Japanese Empire from、mm. an international point of view. On the other hand, of course, as we know, part of the Articles of Faith, part of the basic building blocks of the Constitution of the People's Republic of China, was to assert, of course, that that Taiwan wasn't part of the Japanese Empire, but Taiwan was part of China, just as Tibet was. That、That's、was the、right. central plank of of what Mao Zedong's policy. These two clearly couldn't be reconciled. There was also the problem that, irrespective of the legal status of Taiwan, there was Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang occupying the island with armed force. They had brutally suppressed various rebellions on Taiwan by some of the Taiwanese people who would have preferred to be independent. There was also an issue about whether Taiwan was defensible or not. So it was all terribly complicated. Now, the American official view at the end of 1949 was this. They did not want to be seen as an imperial power themselves, taking and dismembering bits of China. 
So the United States, and we're talking here primarily a man called Dean Acheson, who was the Secretary of State of the United States at the time. He was Harry Truman's right-hand man in foreign affairs. Dean Acheson did not want to be accused of being an imperialist who wanted to dismember China uh, by keeping control of Taiwan or keeping Taiwan out of the hands of Beijing. He didn't want to do that because he was hoping that he might be able to reach a kind of modus vivendi. He might be able to reach some kind of way of getting on with Mao and the Communist Party in China, which would enable them to, to sort of maintain relations. And above all, he wanted to prize China, as you saw it, away from the Soviet Union. Uh, Dean Atterson and the Truman administration had convinced themselves that eventually China and the Soviet Union would split apart, that Mao Zedong would fall out with Joseph Stalin or his successors, and they didn't want to impede that process by America sort of getting in the way by appearing to be imperialist power occupying mm. Taiwan. So official view of America at the end of 1949 was they didn't want to really have anything to do with Taiwan. They just wanted to leave it as it was. They thought that fairly soon Mao would invade that the People's Liberation Army would take over Taiwan. America didn't want to get involved. Now, again, this was there was a problem with this, which, of course, there were many people in the United States who dis disagreed with that. There were many people in the United States, particularly the Republican Party and in the armed forces, who said, look, Taiwan is strategically very important. It, there it sits at the entrance of the South China Sea. It's within bomber range of Japan. It's within bomber range of the Philippines. It's got air bases. The Japanese, you see, have left quite a big infrastructure on Taiwan of air bases, aerodromes, railroads, army camps, and so forth. So a lot of people in America within the Republican Party and the armed forces were saying, look, we've got to keep on hold of Taiwan. And what's more, it'll be easy to do it because Taiwan is defensible. You know, Taiwan can be a point because of the geography of Taiwan. I mean, as you know, the geography of Taiwan is such that actually it's quite difficult to, to invade it. The eastern side of the country, the eastern coastline of the country is, is very mountainous. On the western side, there aren't actually that many invasion beaches. And the Taiwan Strait is pretty notorious for its, for its bad weather. Mm. So there were people in America who said, look, we can defend Taiwan, so we should defend Taiwan. The Truman administration really just didn't want to get involved. They, they would have preferred, frankly, I think, if, 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 if the island of Taiwan had sort of floated off somewhere in the middle of the Pacific and disappeared. Mm. And so this great controversy developed in America at the end of 1949 about whether Taiwan should be held, whether it shouldn't be held, whether or not there should be a referendum on Taiwan for Taiwanese independence, what they were going to do about Chiang Kai-shek. Of course, the Americans knew that Chiang Kai-shek was, was corrupt and oppressive, and he wasn't really somebody you wanted to be involved in if you were supposedly a democratic country like the United States. So there were all these hugely complicated issues. And this provided a means by which the Republican Party in America, who, of course, were opposed to everything Harry Truman stood for and wanted to just get rid of Harry Truman as soon as possible, it gave them the opportunity to make Taiwan into an issue in American politics. And obviously, in the last 70-odd years since this period, periodically, Taiwan has kept returning as an mm. issue in American politics. Uh, that's And this is really where all that kind of began. Mm. Mr. Bunker, two more questions before letting you go. Now, again, going back to the title of the book, it's called In the Shadow of Fear. Now, what is the message behind this title? Why why would you call it In the Shadow of Fear? Your explanation. Well, that, that, that title actually comes from a quotation from the uh, British philosopher Bertrand Russell. And as I'm sure you know, Bertrand Russell is actually uh, quite widely studied in China. I mean, yes. He's, uh, he's spent some time in China himself, and of course he's remembered with, I think, some affection, actually. And I'm a great admirer of Bertrand Russell myself, actually, I always have been. Uh, when I was a child, he was still alive. He used to appear mm. on British television. He was a remarkable figure. And what he said was, um, in 1949, he said, at present, all except the most thoughtless 
live under a shadow of fear. Mm. Now, Bertrand Russell said that in a book that he wrote called Values in the Atomic Age. So he was really talking primarily about nuclear weapons. He was talking about the, the kind of fears that existed after the detonations of the first atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. He was talking about being in a nuclear age when there was the possibility of, of mass destruction of a kind of the end of the human race. So that's what he meant. But there were other fears as well in America at the time. There was a kind of general atmosphere of fear. One problem was that at this point in history, 1949, 1950, people did not yet feel confident about the economic future. Mm. Now, we know in retrospect that the years from 1950 through to the 1970s were going to be a great period of economic expansion in America, in Europe, in Japan, and so on, that it was going to be a very prosperous period. Okay, there were recessions and so on, but generally speaking, there was a lot of expansion, a lot of growth, a lot of prosperity, consumer society, everybody got cars, televisions, washing machines, and so on. Mm. But people didn't know that in 1949-1950. In this particular moment, some of them still feared that maybe America would go back to the conditions of the Great Depression era. So that was another area of fear, the fear of um, a return to depression-type conditions. Mm. And, and people still kept, were worried about right through until the middle of the 1950s. It was only about 1954 to 5 that people started to feel really confident that America had entered a period of, of lasting expansion, which would then kind of spill over into Western Europe and Japan as well. Mm. So that's another kind of fear. There was also the fear of crime. Uh, this was a period when many people believed that the crime rate in America was soaring. Mm. Problems, for example, like illegal narcotics. This is the first period at which you really see a lot of concern about, for example, the use of heroin, the use of other kind of drugs in American cities. With that came the fear of the mob. Again, this was a period when people really became aware um, of something they called the mafia, the Cosa Nostra, crime syndicates in American cities. They were frightened of that too. And of course, they were frightened of communism. And they were frightened of communism not just as a threat overseas, uh, with Joseph Stalin sitting there in Moscow uh, with, with his atom bombs and, and the Soviet army. They were also fear, fearful of communism as something they saw at home. You know, so many people believed that there was, if you like, a communist fifth column inside the United States. And it wasn't totally unreasonable because actually there had been uh, a lot of Soviet infiltration of the United States during the 1930s and 1940s. It, it had kind of, it had mostly been contained and suppressed by this stage. But people were still worried about it. So the general atmosphere of fear there. And also there were kind of just fears of change. Hmm. Uh, if you think about, for example, if you were living a, a white American living in the southern states, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and so forth, you were scared about the change to your way of life, which you thought would come about if there was civil rights legislation and the segregation of, of white right. and black came to an end. So there were fears about that. So there are a whole range of fears. Um, and not just um, in America, also in, in continental Europe, too, where people were frightened of much the same thing. And, of course, if you're in continental Europe, the Soviet threat was a lot closer than if you were living in mm. uh, in Illinois or Iowa or, or Ohio, somewhere in, in the middle of the United States. So there were a whole series of anxieties. And you can see this period as being one of anxiety. Now, there was a famous poet, W.H. Auden, who actually wrote in 1948 a poem called The Age of Anxiety. Mm. And so that was the kind of atmosphere. At the same time, of course, it's not the whole story. There was also a great deal of optimism in some quarters about the technological possibilities for the future. And, of course, Americans were really starting to get into the what I mentioned earlier, buying televisions and washing machines and refrigerators, all these new mm. post-war goods. So it's a complicated situation. But, yes, there was a kind of overall tinge of fear and anxiety which pervaded this period. Mr. Bunker, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question. Again, as we look at U.S.-China relationship today, and again, as we use the word uncertainty, unpredictable, and most importantly, it's 
we are hoping as an international community that both countries can get back on the right track and we can work together and also to promote this positive and healthful relationship. Of course, in the ideal world, that could happen. But in this reality today, it's rather difficult. So I want to ask you that by reading your book, In the Shadow of Fear, looking at the history that in the early 1950s, and of course, through the presidency of Truman, we'll look at China, look at Soviet Union, and everything together. What lesson do you think the readers should understand when we finish reading your book? Or at least something that can be uh, can be used as a wake-up call when we look at this complication of geopolitical change today. Your final thoughts. Well, I take the view that the domestic policy, what you do in your own country and what you do in your foreign policy are closely related together. Mm. And one of the messages of my book to do with the United States in particular is when you're confronting what you think of as a difficult foreign situation, difficult situation overseas, whether it be the challenge from China or, or the situation in Ukraine or whatever, you've got to remember you mustn't succumb to kind of strife and bitterness and total partisanship in your own domestic arena. Mm. Now, I think if the United States and China are going to reach the kind of murders for Vendi, then both countries really have to sort out issues at home first. Um, in America, you've really got to see an end to the kind of um, bitter, um, fratricidal, deeply right. polarized antagonism and anger that characterizes America today. It really is, especially for someone like myself. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, although I'm British, I'm, I would regard myself as a great friend of America. I'm very fond of the United States. I've done a lot of traveling there over the years. I spent a lot of time in the United States, and my books are basically written for an American audience. Mm. But obviously, I feel um, exasperated by the, by the way that Americans are continually at each other's throats. There's a whole lot of economic issues, for example, they need to sort out. They've, got to, they've really got to end this situation of, of, of such extremes of inequality between rich and poor, of unfair rewards. They've got to try and repair the damage done by many years during which the living standards so much the population just haven't improved at all. They've got to sort these issues out and try and achieve some kind of consensus politics on, on the domestic front. Mm. Stop arguing about things they shouldn't be arguing about. But I mean, China's got similar issues too. I mean, the issues of the Chinese economy need, need sorting out again. I mean, China is in a situation where its economic growth has, has slowed dramatically. They have their real estate crisis. Again, you've got big gulfs of inequality in China in terms of between the, the cities and the, and the rural areas. You've got educational inequality in China. You know, the education, there are some obviously huge educational achievements in China. I mean, we all know about them. We all know about Chinese scientists and, and, and the Chinese universities, great universities and so on, and especially around Shanghai and the, and the tremendous growth and prosperity and dynamism of Shanghai. But on the other hand, we also know there are many parts of China where education is very, very poor. Um, and that kind of thing needs to be repaired. And this is really what we need to see. We need to think, think both countries sort out their issues at home if they're actually going to be able to reach some kind of um, diplomatic reconciliation or modus vivendi um, on the international scale. Well, Mr. Bunker, that will be a great reminder and also that'll be a great lesson for anyone that who still asks the question, what's going to happen between the two countries? Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, it's my great honor to have Mr. Nick Bunker on the show. Again, I strongly encourage everyone to uh, connect with Mr. Bunker through social media and also his website. And most importantly, check out his amazing book, in the shadow of fear, let's talk about how the history in the past can actually teach us something fruitful and meaningful and even more what we say engaging when we look at the present and the future. 
Well, Mr. Punker, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed that conversation. We'd love to have you back on the show, and of course, we would love to have you to to uh, continue to uh, uh, promote your book and also, of course, with your publications. Really teach us something that we need to know about the past so we can understand the present and the future. So, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you very much, Will. I really enjoyed it too.